0: I'm Alicia Miklasik-Gonzalez, host of the Real Talk podcast and an emergency doctor with Vituity, a physician-led and owned partnership comprised of doctors, advanced providers, and industry professionals working together to provide compassionate, quality acute care to patients across the nation. Vituity's number one goal is to be at the heart of better care. But in considering what's important to us and prioritizing the wellness of our clinicians and employees, Vituity has also made diversity a focus of their work. The following episode is brought to you by members of one of Vituity's enterprise resource groups, created to provide support for different demographic groups within our organization. Our hope is to amplify stories from the diverse community of healthcare workers we proudly work alongside, while acknowledging the unfair systems we continue to struggle with in our country, and then work together to change them. This is Real Talk Unplugged.
1: Hi, I'm Sandy Fan, a proposal developer with the Growth Team at Vituity, and Secretary of CAPI, Coalition of Asian American and Pacific Islander Empowerment. Welcome to Real Talk, a place where healthcare professionals share stories about the human experiences that have shaped and affected their careers working in medicine. Today, we'll hear a story from Christy Tran, an Administrative Coordinator with the Growth Team at Vituity, and one of CAPI's Meetings and Events co-chairs. Amidst the surge in anti-Asian violence this past year, Christie, like many in the Asian-American and Pacific Islander community, has struggled with what it means to be an AAPI in a country with a very complicated history of immigration and racial conflict. The model minority myth casts Asian-Americans as a group that has made it in America despite challenges through hard work and assimilation. The belief that most AAPIs are successful and don't face racism obscures a long history of scapegoating and the view of AAPIs as foreigners. While many Americans were shocked at stories in the media of hate crimes committed against Asian Americans, many of the victims have been women and the elderly, the AAPI community was not surprised. The nation's first restrictive immigration law, the 1875 Page Exclusion Act, banned the entry of Chinese women who were seen as prostitutes and the bearers of disease. After the Pearl Harbor bombing during World War II, 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent, who were suspected of remaining loyal to Japan, were placed in internment camps. Nearly two-thirds of the interns were born in the U.S. and many had never been to Japan. In 1982, Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American, was beaten to death with a baseball bat by two auto workers in Detroit who blamed fuel-efficient Japanese cars for the auto recession. The perpetrators were only sentenced to a three-year probation and $3,000 fine. Fast forward to 2020. With the initial COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan and prominent U.S. leaders calling COVID-19 the Chinese or China virus, anyone who looked Asian became a target. Between March 2020 and February 2021, Stop AAPI Hate reported nearly 3,800 anti-Asian hate incidents in the U.S. So what do you do when you fear for your grandparents and parents, for your own safety? What do you do when you are devastated by and outraged at the atrocities being committed against your community, but you have always been a good, compliant model minority? This is Christy's story.
2: On March 16th, 2021, six Asian women who were working at three separate Atlanta spas were murdered. On that day, a man woke up and chose to not only take these women's lives but completely decimate the lives of their families and loved ones, too. When I learned about the Atlanta shootings that day, I was hit with a feeling I hadn't felt before. It was an overwhelmingly tragic feeling, but I was also incredibly livid at the same time. It felt like chaos. And as the day progressed, that chaotic feeling only grew stronger. This wasn't a targeted act against Asians. He was just having a bad day. Are you kidding? In the weeks leading up to this catastrophic event, I would read about elderly Asian Americans who were being assaulted and attacked every day. One man was attacked less than five minutes from where my grandma lived. Every day, that chaotic feeling welled even more. But even though I felt so intensely upset about what was going on, I somehow couldn't find the will to just acknowledge my own feelings. It felt contradictory, but I for some reason couldn't find the strength to just Be unapologetically angry about a tragedy that had occurred within my own community. And then on March 24th, 2021, Vituity held a panel on anti-Asian racism and violence, where I listened to other fellow Vitans that had been carrying their own experiences with racism and hate. Something about this panel struck a nerve in me, and I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I felt validation in what I was experiencing within myself, I felt compassion for the Vitans who spilled their heart out in front of hundreds of people. And I knew what it took to speak up at that panel. It was a strength in one's convictions and a belief in belonging that I hadn't found in myself yet. And when the panel ended that day, I took a long time to try and understand what I was feeling this entire time the chaos that had been bouncing around in my mind that entire week. And I eventually came to realize what it was it was decades of pent up anger and frustration that had come reeling to the surface. I realized that almost every instance of racism I had encountered throughout my entire life had gone unacknowledged. In almost every memory I have of experiencing it, my instinct was always to internalize my feelings and move on. And why did I do that? Why, instead of speaking out, did I always just laugh it off with half-hearted chuckle? I would always walk away from those experiences wanting to cry out of a suppressed frustration and anger. And the anger was always at the other person, but it was also at myself. Why did I let them just say that to me? How do I rationalize something that has always been second nature to me? Isn't that just what you're supposed to do? I began to look inside myself and question decades of my instilled ways of thinking. Growing up, I was always taught to reject confrontation and emotion. Living in a small apartment full of first-generation Vietnamese-Americans, the number one goal put in front of me was to succeed. My grandma uprooted her entire life in the hopes of a better life for her children and her future grandchildren and left Vietnam with her sons and daughters in a boat. Not all of her children could come either. Some had to stay in Vietnam, and one had even begun the journey but did not make it to the destination. My family left Vietnam in the hopes of achieving the American dream. And while this dream was, and still is, a very real desire, the harsh reality was that even though my mom, uncles, and aunts all came to America at a very young age, they were never going to be seen as full-fledged Americans. My siblings and I grew up without consistently having food at the table and with the absence of our parents feeling like a normality. My mom worked 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week, and my father left the picture before I was old enough to remember. Yet for my immigrant family, it seemed like the challenge was worth it to them. For my immigrant family, they didn't have a choice in whether they had to participate in real conflict or violence in Vietnam. They escaped a war and moved to a new country They would still always be labeled as an outsider. And their ask of me, second generation who did have choice over the matter, was to ignore it. Ignore conflict. Keep my head down. Don't start things just focus on my path. I had a pathway to Americanness that they could never attain, and if that path was already a steep upward hill, why would I make it any harder for myself to get there? I complied. As a child, I did not respond to the people who mimicked slanted eyes at me. I let offhand comments about the way I looked different slide. I didn't correct people when they asked where I was really from. I didn't question the fact that I was placed in English language development in elementary school, when my English was actually perfect and I was just a shy child. As a teenager, I eventually became desensitized to boys that said they quote-unquote had a thing for Asian girls. I accepted that narrative. And without realizing it, by doing so, I began to turn away from my own identity. I slowly stopped speaking Vietnamese at home I consistently weaseled my way out of bringing homemade lunches to school because they smelled different. I stopped consuming Asian media and culture. I began to distance myself from my own family, who knew no other way of existing than in their own roots. I did anything to avoid being labeled as different. I did as I was told. I laughed when the others laughed. I did not speak if it was not my turn. I always agreed with the majority because I didn't want to stick out. I was a people pleaser, which is what my family insisted was best for me. As a result, it had become ingrained in me that my voice was not important enough to have a seat at the table, especially if it was a voice that went against the grain. Assimilating meant erasing my own identity. I will never understand what it was like to live in Vietnam at that time, but I think that the choice to lay low and stay quiet in America is a trauma response to my family's experiences in a country so recently torn apart by violence and war. And by comparison, all the underhanded comments, jokes, and glances from other Americans were just a harmless tax they paid to be accepted. If conflict and racism triggered a fight or flight mode, my family opted for flight, and they implored me to do the same. I think this choice is one that countless other AAPI families have also made. And as a result, it's granted us a lot of opportunities and privileges that are not present for other communities. I know plenty of AAPI people who are incredibly successful and have maybe even attained what we consider the American dream. But I know now that accepting this rhetoric, even if it means reaching that dream, does not lead to true acceptance in this country. That rhetoric means surrendering our identity and allowing it to be morphed into what our America wants us to be. We've allowed ourselves to be deemed as mathematical geniuses, as sexual fetishes, as terrorists, as communist spies, as karate masters, as IT support, as the ones who bust your dishes and file your nails. And granted, these stereotypes are not all necessarily hateful ones, but that doesn't take away from what it ultimately is, a stereotype. And what these stereotypes do is build the harmful narrative and mindset that AAPI people are not real people. We are a concept. We are a punchline. We are objects. So when the public begins to accept the false narrative that we are the cause of this pandemic, it is that much easier for ignorant people to dehumanize us. It is that much easier to be put into a trope. It is that much easier for someone to decide to channel their violent anger at the elderly Asian American, and it is that much easier for someone to wake up and opt to feel better by shooting six Asian women. Because we've let so many other things be chosen for us, these people think they can choose whether or not we deserve to be here, too. F*** that. I don't want to let anyone else decide who we are as a race anymore. I want to find strength in my own identity. I want to someday become 100% fluent in Vietnamese. I want to learn so much more of my culture and where I come from. I want to reconnect the threads that I've severed with my family and find solace again in my roots. Trying to figure out and focus on who I am rather than how I want people to see me. The Asian American experience is so multifaceted and contradictory which makes it hard to articulate how I'm supposed to feel or be at times. As I read this, I feel anger, guilt, sadness, hope, confusion, and regret all at once. At the same time, I know that I still have a lot of privilege to be where I am today, and I should use it to at least speak out for what I believe in. I want to one day find the strength and conviction that will urge me to speak out regardless of what people may think of me, just like the amazing Vitens that I listened to at that panel. And I still have trouble speaking out where it counts. And to be honest, I'm I'm terrified of putting myself out there by recording this podcast. And I know that it's going to take a lot of unlearning to feel empowered to do so one day. But this is a step.
1: Christy's story illustrates how many AAPIs have internalized the model minority myth believing that keeping your head down, avoiding conflict, and blending in is the path to being American. But the surge of anti-Asian violence this past year has brought into stark relief how harmful misperceptions about AAPIs can be, and how keeping silent perpetuates stereotypes about Asian Americans. The model minority myth makes AAPIs invisible to larger society and divides this group from other communities of color that see AAPIs as privileged and affluent. At the same time, some AAPIs who are influenced by the media's focus on a suspect's race when the suspect is a person of color, are fearful and distrustful of other minority groups. Stereotypes about AAPIs and people of color classify us as other, justify systemic racism, and keep many of us silent and separate in dealing with our different experiences of racism. So how do we as individuals take action to dismantle harmful racial stereotypes and combat racial injustice? We use our voices to redefine the narratives about our diverse American identities. We speak up and share our stories the way Christy had the courage to share her story. We honestly examine our own beliefs about race because we all have racial biases, no matter how unprejudiced we consciously try to be or think we are. We speak up and educate ourselves and our loved ones to discover the complex and multifaceted stories beyond the stereotypes. We speak up and intervene when we witness hate-based violence and harassment. Hollaback, in partnership with Asian Americans Advancing Justice, offers free bystander intervention and de-escalation training to help you safely intervene. We speak up and reach out across communities, working together to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. I leave you with these words from Malala Yousafzai, the young Pakistani activist who risked her life to speak out for female education. When the whole world is silent, even one voice becomes powerful. Thank you to Christy Tran for sharing her story with us, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Sandy, and this is Real Talk.
0: Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Start at realtalk.transistor.fm, or you can follow the link in the show notes for this episode.